According to this, we are now being recorded. So this one, um, I will, I'll try to get this downloaded and up tomorrow. I've, I've been slower when it's on my phone as opposed to the recorder, but I will give it a shot. This is the sign-in sheet. So again, please um, give me input if you would. And if you're listening tomorrow or later online, uh, I have just asked for input for a uh, anywhere from a uh, seven or eight week to a 14 week series this fall because um, we have two sections and we can do part A, part B. Um, for either textual or for topics if we did a series on how to do topical studies. So now we are definitely in chapter three and looking at the first 13 verses, which are the churches or the letters to the churches in Sardis and Philadelphia, which in the in the numbers are churches numbers five and six of the seven. Um, and as I said earlier, if we have time, we will go ahead and do Laodicea, and um, then try to uh, try to put it all together tonight, and then we would not be meeting next week. Uh, what questions might you have regarding your study, the words, the questions, the questions about what questions, what questions they don't have, any, anything? Um, let's put a priority on uh, Sardis and Philadelphia, but go ahead and give me any, if you do have them, some of you have been able to look at the study guide for Laodicea already, so if you do have them, give me those as well. Any questions? Okay, and uh, I believe it was just what? What does the crown represent? Okay. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, taken from us. Okay. Now I remember. Okay. Number eight. Coming quickly. With a question mark, since that was 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Any other questions? The key of David was kind of interesting. What, what number was that? It was right in that oh, was cluster. Seven. Okay. All right. Any others? Any of the words that you struggled with or don't know why in the world I would put it in there? Okay. Now, I have been, by the way, using various words and uh, particularly pronouncing the, um, the cities. For example, Philadelphia, um, Sardis. And I did an interesting thing. Does anybody know what I did with that? It's just one of those things that we take for granted, but um, rather than stretching it out. Um, most of these I'm pronouncing the way the word would be pronounced today in Greece. Philadelphia is not one of those. So where in the world did I get Philadelphia to pronounce that? In yes, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so sometimes it's just simpler, honestly, 
when it's a word that we have co-opted into English and it is that close, and in this case it is identical, to just go with what's known. So I could call it Philadelphia, and if we didn't have a city in Pennsylvania named this, that's what I'd be saying, because that's how you say that. But that's not how we say it, it sounds stupid. So rather than be a distraction, it's easier to just go with the flow. Um, that, that city on the next study guide, does everybody see the one with an L? I've heard that pronounced a number of times recently and it's kind of fun because um, I say there's, there's no wrong way to pronounce a word. That's not entirely true. If you add letters, that's wrong. <laughs> so if you add two or three consonants and then pronounce it with those extra consonants, whatever else it was, it wasn't that. We know that because the spelling does come down 2,000 years. We, we know it was spelled this way 2,000 years ago, right? And so we, we cannot add more letters. And sometimes we do that, and almost always it's because someone's stumbling over the uh, pronunciation, doesn't just, just doesn't know how to say it, and their, their mouth goes to something that feels familiar or sounds familiar, and they just camp out there. So you do want to be a little bit careful when you're pronouncing these to simply not add or subtract letters. So let's respect their letters. But other than that, you're still pretty open in how you say it. Okay? By now, I think we're all centered well on the background and what it's all about and what the angel is and all of that. So we're just going to dive in. Chapter 3, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. So wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, we'll go back and unpack that. So, first question is, what do we know about Sardis? It's actually split into two cities, one up on the hill, and then when it got pulled, and they built one down. Okay, so it expanded, so to speak. Okay. said it was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Okay. Great wealth of fame. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these were, were cities that, like today, most larger cities are larger cities because of commerce. It draws people, you know. So there's a lot of, of wealth. Um, and yes, they, this one had a particularly ancient set of roots, if you will, um, to, to be the capital of a region that predated uh, Rome and even predated some of the Greek uh, rule. Anything else that you found? Is that a synagogue that was three times bigger than 
Okay, so a very large and, uh, and relatively powerful Jewish community. One of my notes calls it a luxurious city. Okay, so we're back to the rich. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not Santa Ana, it's Beverly Hills. Now? Well, Actually, now it doesn't exist. That's pretty yeah, it's, it's one of, <laughs> quite, quite obscure. It's one of the two of the seven that literally does not exist today. Most of them, there's something there, but uh, these two seem to have simply gone to dust. Okay. So maybe somebody declared a site. <laughs> yeah. My suspicion is if there's a village there, it's made up of archaeological workers. Which happens. Again. All of a sudden there's an economy there. You know. A couple of other things real quick. Um, they they like their uh their uh polity roots, the city roots. They also had faith roots and it was kind of an interesting thing because some of the pagan gods actually uh, morphed from the pre-Greek god that was the, the god that they worshipped in that area. And then the Greeks came through and basically would name a Greek name to that god and just kind of make that, oh yeah, you worship her, that's, we call her this. So Sibylle, and we call her Demeter. Um, I think it was, it was Demeter. Um, and, and then the Romans come through, and it can be morphed even further. And in this case, um, and I couldn't find which one, but there was apparently one of the um, deified emperor's mother who was considered deified. Because after all, how do you get a god if you don't have a god giving birth to the god, right? It's just one of those problems that ancient cities dealt with. Um, and so one goddess being worshipped all the way back into ancient times from their perspective, but simply given new names uh, for the new culture that kind of took over. Um, and, and it was a good example of what they tended to do. Um, and, and there's one other thing. At this time, there's actually no record of any Christian persecution happening in Sardis. Now, you've seen in the map that I distributed last week, um, there's certainly persecution happening near them. So it's not like they don't know about it. Um, they are, of course, a Roman city. They all are. They're all under the, the boot of Rome, whether they did that voluntarily or not. And, uh, and so they know what's going on in terms of Rome's persecution. But those living in the city of Sardis were not in any particular immediate danger. And that's kind of reflected here. So we go back to what uh, Jesus actually said. I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. So you know, Jesus says, okay, I, I know you, you've got the history, you've got the name, but doesn't impress me. You're dead. And there's a judgment, just a flat judgment being made on uh, these people. Now remember, this is not the city of Sardis. Who is this? That's yeah, it's the church that this is written to. 
So, I mean, the, the city, of course, had its own judgment issues. But in this case, uh, it was the church that was, that was being judged in all of these cases. So, wake up. Anybody get the, the, the word? That's one I put in there so you'd have fun with it. Gregorio, which sounds like, yeah, that's where we get the name. So the next time you know a guy named Greg, you just walk up and tell him, hey, wake up. Yes, he'll, I'm sure, appreciate the humor. Um, it doesn't just mean wake up. It's like, be alive, which fits, you know, again, think context. He's just told them, you think you're alive, but you're dead. So get alive, for Pete's sake. You know, it's, it's wake up almost sounds like they, they've sort of forgotten the context. But, you know, he's saying the same thing. You're dead, so quit being dead. Strengthen the things that do remain, which were about to die, because I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Anybody look up keep it? And what does it mean? Yeah. It's the word for guard. If you have a Roman soldier who's put in charge of something, that Roman soldier has an extraordinary motivation to make sure that something is kept safe or in custody if it's a person under guard. Because in the Roman military, if you were put in charge and you let it be stolen, or you let someone escape, your life is forfeit. Pretty cool motivation, right? So they, they tended to take this pretty seriously. This is the word. So it's a pretty heavy word. It's not just, you know, you need to do what he tells you. No, it, it's like you, you need to protect those commands. You need to protect those imperatives, not just the, the knowledge of them, but their, their residence in your life. Because... In essence, this is your life. And everybody got it because that was part of their culture. So he says you need to keep it and then repent comes in again. Have you noticed, by the way, how often repent comes in? I mean, Jesus was never afraid to say repent. You, you need to change this. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come to you. Now, I'm about to ask you what that refers to and what that means, and you're going to say something, and you will be right, but you will probably be incomplete. So, let's go with the right part, the obvious part. Jesus says, I will come like a thief. Where does that come from? Have you heard that before? Where did you hear that? Not necessarily the citation, but just, it was in the Gospels. This is how Jesus dis has always described his return. Now, what does he mean when he says, I'll come like a thief? Does he mean I'm going to crawl through your window? I have a club I will hit you with. What's, what's the point of the metaphor? Okay. You, you, and unwelcome. Uh, it, it, or could be unwelcome because that's going to depend on us and whether we prepare, right? Obviously with the thief it's unwelcome. But So yeah, you don't schedule appointments with the thief. I've tried. 
I have a van I've actually put, please steal me, and it's still there. So it doesn't work, right? They, when, when a thief comes, it is when you did not expect it. And if you've ever been uh, burglarized, and, and I have, uh, it, it's rather a shock. It, you know, you come home, you see, wait a minute, <laughs> that window had a screen on it and wasn't broken. And so you kind of know something's going on. The door's standing open, you walk in, and things are missing, right? So uh, you've been visited. It was unscheduled. And if you're not prepared for it, like bolting the door or not having glass on your window, I guess, I don't know, um, then you're, you're going to lose. It's going to be a bad experience. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, when I come, it's not going to be something that, you know, everybody predicts, everybody knows. It's going to sneak up on you. You're not going to know it's happening. And that's, this isn't just to churches he's chewing out. In the Gospels, he's saying this to everyone. And the motivation for it is, so be ready. So if you are ready for a thief and the thief comes, the thief gets scared away and goes away. In this case, if you're ready for Jesus when he comes, then it is not a bad experience for you. It is a good experience for you, right? But you can't be ready by scheduling. You have to be ready by your life being ready, by changing your life. It's the only way it works. Does everybody agree? Is there, I see quizzical. Oh, I don't think anybody's going to mistake who he is when he comes. The, the question's going to be, are they ready for him? Okay, so it's, it's the preparedness and not, yes. the, not the stealth way you'll... Well, it's stealth in that even we know how many people have tried to predict the date, the time. Not yet. You know, and he basically just says, yeah, anytime somebody says that, yeah, no. But in the moment that it's happening... When it's happening? As the lightning from the east to the west... That's how Jesus himself described it. And that's how, by the way, it's a basic principle of hermeneutics, which is science of interpretation. But not just biblical interpretation, any literature, always allow the clear to interpret the unclear. When Jesus said that, there was no metaphor involved. So when you're reading metaphor, you're reading symbolism, you're trying to figure out what it means, go back to what you know. So whatever this means isn't going to contradict that. So one way or the other, uh, the idea of a secret rapture, uh, the word rapture, by the way, totally unbiblical, but it's okay. Um, I, I personally don't like it because it's just not a word people use, so it ends up taking on some very weird connotations. Um, but it is the word that is uh, typically used to refer to the return of Jesus and the concurrent uh, rising of the dead uh, and um, the, the uh, being caught up in the air for those of us who are here at the time. You read about that in Thessalonians. And again, very literal uh, section, not a, an allegorical section. Um, so that's what's known as the rapture. There is in, in a lot of modern dispensational theology a tendency to talk about that as it's something that's going to happen. It's going to happen very secretly. No one else is going to know it happened. So the people who are left behind, uh, as in a whole series of books and movies that are predicated on, forgive me, you can 
you have to forgive me and love me because the Bible says so. On false teaching. Because there is no such thing as a secret rapture. Never was, never will be. Lightning to the east and the west. Anybody been in the Midwest in a giant thunder or thunder and lightning storm? Yeah. Kind of miss them, don't you? Yeah. And, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, bam, for about three seconds, you can read any fine print. It is that strong. Well, the, the, if, if you're asking the roots of dispensational theology, it's not a simple question. Um, I'm, it, can be, it can be ferreted out uh, because it is a relatively recent phenomenon. Late 19th, early 20th century didn't exist before that, literally. First almost 1,900 years of the existence of the church, nobody taught that. So all of a sudden, some people kind of made it up, Western Europe and the United States. And we know where they're coming from, but that's a much longer thing. But then what they do is they take passages like this and then try to make them fit the system that they've worked out. And that's where things get really creative, if I could use that word. So there's the thief thing. Now, I told you there was another meaning. Did anybody get the meaning of this that was peculiar to the city of Sardis? Um, not necessarily. Well, sort of, kind of, but not entirely. Well, we knew that. So here's the thing. In the history of the city of, of Sardis, um, and, we're, and again, we're talking an area that has been conquered now in, in, quote, recent memory, which means the last few centuries, by three different military groups. Never was Sardis as a city-state conquered by a direct assault. Never. They were assaulted, but it never worked. They were too wealthy, too strong, uh, walls built too thick. They survived it. But twice, by intrigue, by someone sneaking in and um, tricking them and getting them to lower their defenses, twice they were overcome. So the very history of the people of Sardis understood the concept of direct assault versus a thief's type of thing, a sneaky type of thing. Um, but it's one of those little things that, it doesn't change the meaning if you don't know that history, but it's kind of fun to know that, you know, Jesus, of course, knows this. Um, the, the people in Sardis know this. So there's a communication happening there that drives this home, this thief in the night thing for them uh, in a way far more meaningful than what we catch. Okay, moving on. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they'll walk with me in white for they are worthy. Okay, so um, in, in many of the pagan temples, and I have read one, but only one reference that this was true in uh, the temple in Jerusalem. So I have a tendency to doubt it when there's only one reference saying it was true. Um, but in many of the pagan temples, if you walked into the temple itself to uh, have the priest make a sacrifice for you and you're going to uh, be present when it's done, you could not walk in dirty. 
Okay? You simply didn't do that. And remember, this is a fairly wealthy area. So in general, the area, I, I mean, it's, they don't have the wealth that we have. So, you know, the average person in Asia Minor did not have a closet full of clothes. So to, to appear totally clean uh, in white that shows no uh, smudges, no dirt, no, no filth at all was difficult. But in Sardis, if, if you came in, it wasn't near as difficult because they were wealthy. And so it was considered even doubly uh, a slap in the face to the deity. So if you go into Demeter's uh, temple and offer uh, a sacrifice for the harvest, but you're filthy, um, the belief was the goddess will be insulted and your sacrifice will not be received and in fact you may even be cursed. So there's this this cultural thing that you, you need to be pure if you're going to walk with God or if you're going to talk to God. And, and part of that comes from paganism, but he borrowed the symbolism. And of course, who makes us pure with God? Jesus does. The only way that happens. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then that famous, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is there a book of life, a literal? Does God have a big book? Does he, on our death or at the final judgment, the resurrection, does he stop us, say, now what was your name? And then look it up. Clearly, I think I'm becoming a little sarcastic there, <laughs> so I don't think so. Um, certainly, God is God, and God is not limited and does not need to refer to a book. Um, and no, Peter is not the gatekeeper. And if he was, he'd probably need a book, but he's not, so we don't have that problem. So where's with the book? What's the book? Yeah, what's with the book of life? Where did they get that? In most ancient cities, certainly the Roman cities, um, and there's a difference between being a Roman city and a city under the domination of Rome. A Roman city, all legal residents had Roman citizenship. And that was a benefit um, literally worth your life. I mean, that's, that's why many people voluntarily entered uh, the gladiatorial combats. That's why many people voluntarily entered the legions, because by doing so, putting their life on the line for X number of decades, they would retire with citizenship. And then, by the way, once they were citizens, their children were automatically citizens. And there was a book kept in the city of residence of legal citizens. They did not have cities of millions of people. So that wasn't an unbelievable task. Um, there was a book that was kept that would be, if you were awarded citizenship, your name is entered into the book. If you had your citizenship stripped, criminal action, you're banned from the city, um, 
debt, your, your, your citizenship is stripped and you're sold uh, into to, uh, servitude, uh, your name is blotted out. So this, this concept of a book where your name can be entered and it has literally life-changing, even life-saving benefits was something they all understood under the Romans. There, I, I read just today that this was also a tradition with the Greeks, and I frankly never read that before. So I'm not sure that's true. Um, wouldn't surprise me a lot because under Alexander and his military conquests, I anytime there's a big military machine going, belonging to the people who owned the military is a benefit, right? Um, with, with Rome, Pax Romana. If your, your name was on one of those lists, and there was a couple of other ways that identified you, and you were harmed, um, one of two things was going to happen, possibly both. Number one, whoever harmed you, if they were found, was going to be crucified. They were not going to be executed. They were going to be crucified, unless they were another citizen, and then it, it's kind of like our laws. They just try to figure out who did what. But if, there, if it wasn't a Roman citizen, they're going to nail them up and leave them there to die. And it was a, a lesson to everyone. And it is said that a Roman citizen could walk literally from Rome to Palestine without being molested. Simply because of the fear of what Rome would do if you were. Because if they could not find who did it, or if they believed that the, the local authorities were lax and therefore allowed this to happen, then they were going to take a group of hostages from the local city or the surrounding countryside, and those people were going to join that guy on the crosses. So it was, this is huge in the Roman, um, the Roman culture. The Greek culture, like I said, I, I've not seen more than one reference to it being there, but it may have been. But by this time, they were way used to the Romans. Uh, the Romans had, had been overseeing them for decades. So everybody got it. Okay. Okay. Um, any questions here? I don't think any of these were about this. No. Any other questions on Sardis before we move on? Okay. So what do we know about Philadelphia? And it's not in Pennsylvania. First of all, what does it mean? Okay. It is a city called Love a Brother. Which may or may not have anything to do with the city, but that's what it was called. What do we know about the city? It's founded by the citizens of Pergamum. Okay. Pergamum. Pergamum. Sure. That's good. It was a community built on, in a frontier area. Originally built. Yeah. yeah. As a gateway to the central plateau of Asia Minor. Okay. And by this time, had been developed, so it was now not frontier, it was city. Okay. So, yeah, that is, there's the history of it. Couple of other items. Anybody get any more? Very fertile for growing. Yeah. Yeah. Commercially important. I kept out 
barbarians and brought in the Greek culture and language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Almost all of them did because of their status, but that is important to understand because that's what's driving the persecution. Uh, the other thing that you said is kind of funny because the, the definition of barbarian depended on who won the last battle. Because who lost the last battle? That's the barbarians. <laughs> and whoever's the new ones. Now, and there is a major exception to that, and it was kind of fascinating because the Romans did not consider the Greeks barbarians. They enslaved the Greeks, but recognized their superior culture, superior uh, intellectual development as a culture, educational system, philosophies, and so forth. So many of the Greeks that were enslaved were made teachers of Romans. Because the Romans, they didn't have an inferiority complex. They were just fine being known as uh, uncultured, but extremely good in two things, engineering and war. And, and as far as they were concerned, as long as you remember that last one, they were fine. Because you remember the last one, you're not going to rebel. No. Um, they, like most of the others, any of these that had um, a good-sized population and wealth had many pagan temples. Some of the smaller towns would generally have one. They would have a deity the town was kind of uh, dedicated to. It would be the patron deity of the town. But in, in a case like this, there would be rows of temples, many of them. Um, and of course, then that makes things a bit more uncomfortable for the Jews and the Christians, simply because they would come in. Nobody cared that they worship Yahweh, but as soon as it was found out that they would not worship any of those other deities or the emperor, now we got a problem. Um, by this time, the, there had been an order in place for decades that um, it had happened, uh, had been had issued before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. It was in the 60s. I've seen 62, but any time you see specific dates for things like that, uh, be wary because we don't have the, the precision to, to calendar to calendar to do that. Somewhere in the early mid-60s, a council of rabbis met in Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean world and dealt with the Christian problem. And the Christian problem was that this was a Jewish sect that now was predominantly Gentile. So what do we do with people in the synagogue who say they're Christians and then uh, the, they don't need to obey the law and they worship and interact all the time with all of these pagans? Because in, in their mind, they were still pagans. Uh, answer, we put them out of the synagogue. We got to put a stop to this. And so a decree went out. There was no formal authority, but they had a lot of power, had a lot of influence. And uh, this is one of the cities that fairly early reacted to that and put out of the synagogue anyone who would accept Jesus as the Messiah. So uh, again, pretty uh, good-sized Jewish community but very, very uh, antithetical to, um, to Christians and, and very willing to be part of the persecution of Christians. So here's what got written to them. 
To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, and opens, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So uh, true and holy are words that we probably take for granted, but we do know what they mean. Key of David, what did you get for that? Speak out. Good. What? Well, there's no question that Jesus has the key of David and is the one being spoken about. He who all of these things says this to you. So yes, he's referring to Jesus, but still begs the question of what exactly does the key of David mean? This thing that Jesus has. And what does it say? Okay, so I'm going to set this key on the shoulder. What he does with it is done. He opens, it's open. He shuts, it's shut. Which is mirrored in what was just said here. So this is a, it's not a paraphrase because he's not trying to quote it. He's referencing, but he's attributing that now to Jesus. David is, of course, who? Ancestor, yeah, and as far as the Jews were concerned, would have been, other than Abraham, the ancestor. Because the Messiah was going to be a Messiah who followed in the footsteps of David. That was the belief. He was the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Um, arguably, the greatest Mediterranean emperor ever. And that includes Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Rome. Um, probably not as great as Rome in the sense of breadth because the engineering allowed them to go from Britain to Egypt to uh, Persia to um, West Africa, you know. But militarily, no one opposed him. Once, once he had set up his empire, no one opposed David. Wealth, he had more wealth. He, he didn't care about it particularly. Uh, his son did. <laughs> so we hear about the wealth of Solomon because he now didn't have to establish the empire. He inherited the empire. He had the freedom to take it further and turn it into uh, a giant commercial power, which he did. Now, that's, that's David. The key would literally be in a key. And there would have been a servant, the, the predecessor of what we would call a prime minister. You hear prime minister, what do you think of? Yeah, like a head of state, right? Um, England is the closest to us uh, politically, historically, has a prime minister. The prime minister of England um, is technically the head of all of the queen's servants. The word minister means servant. And prime means the first. So he's the head servant, or, if you will, senior minister. So uh, he is the queen's, not the country's. Now, in a constitutional monarch like England, they have 
morphed that and it's different. But in terms of form, that's still true. He still serves the queen and he has to get the queen's permission to do the things that he does. Um, she's still the queen or whoever inherits from her, the king, the, the monarch, okay? And so the prime minister um, comes from, in a powerful household, the, the, the steward, the guy who was the head of all of the servants. And he would be entrusted with not only the seal, but the keys. And his authority over them was that of the owner. And only the owner could contradict him. He says it's open. It's open. So David's keeper of the keys makes a decision. It's done. And the only person who can contradict it is David. And by the way, that, that happened pretty rarely because the guy's the keeper of the keys because David liked him, trusted him, and honored him by putting him in that role. Almost certainly would never consult with David. David did not want, no, no, no wealthy person wanted to be bogged down with those details. It's like, that's what I pay you for, you know. Um, and they simply trusted them to do that. Now, of course, they were accountable. So if their stewardship was not productive, then they could be removed. Today... Well, no, I think Isaiah, because Isaiah is hundreds of years after David. And I think Isaiah is simply a, a messianic. And the, the messianic message comes uh, twofold. They were wanting it right then in Isaiah's time. But God is using it as, no, that's going to happen, but not yet. Um, so it, it was part of this expectation that there was going to be someone who came with the authority and the power of David. And so the, the keeper of his keys, that was, that was one way to communicate that. In this context, it basically meant the Messiah. But it's just much more flowery. Right? Okay. So we got the keys thing taken care of. Um, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, so far, so good. I know your deeds, and this time it wasn't, and you're evil, or, you know, you, you have a little power, but you've kept my word. You have, you have not betrayed me. You have not denied my name. Uh, denied uh, the same word that would have been used for a legal disowning. So you have not dissociated yourself from me. And Jesus said, you do not deny me, I don't deny you. And that's, that's a pretty powerful thing. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews, but they're not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And by now you figured out that's every one of them. Okay, so did you notice? What did he accuse them of? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. So here's a church where Jesus says to them, you're doing well. You're hanging on. And it's not easy, and I know that. But keep hanging on because I'm going to make those people in the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, but they're not. Now, what is he referring to? Synagogue, Jews, pretty obvious terms. But synagogue of Satan, whatever it was, it wasn't good, right? So from context, from what we've read already, what do you suppose he's referring to? False teachers. But who? The Jews. The Jews. He's not going to call false uh, pagans who, who are supposedly Christians, but false teachers like Jezebel, the Nicolaitans. He's not going to refer to them as a synagogue. It's an explicit, excuse me, an explicitly Jewish term. Um, most scholarship I've read, I suppose you can take, pay your money, take your choice, settles in with this is an actual reference to the synagogue that is uh, in that city. Because remember the, what happened in that city. This synagogue was among the first to simply boot out any Christians. You believe Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one with the keys of David? You're gone. You're out of here. So they think they're Jews. They say they're Jews, but they're not. How can he say they're not Jews? Aren't they Jews? They're Jews. They're, but they're not. Yeah. So what's that about? Okay. What is a Jew? Pardon? Yeah. In 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 the spiritual sense, in the in the spirit of the covenant with Abraham, according to Paul, I'll go back to remember Romans and our study of Romans, a Jew is one of faith. Not blood. Not the law. I'm circumcised. I follow the law. I'm a Jew. No. Because you reject the one who gave the law. So you can't be a Jew. They're rejecting Jesus. But are they rejecting God? Well, I'm pretty sure they're identified. I know, but uh, they didn't believe the Messiah had come. Exactly. And that's the basis of the judgment. They rejected him when he came. And they had plenty of proof. Remember, every sermon ever preached in, in the beginning of the church to identify Jesus as the Messiah came from the Old Testament. Paul, Peter, Stephen, didn't matter. It all came from the Old Testament. Even uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, a guy who's just almost entirely on his own, 
uh, reading from the scrolls of, the, of the, the, what we would call the Old Testament, uh, Philip comes up on the guy, sees him reading, the guy's reading Isaiah, Philip says, you understand? He goes, no. <laughs> and, but once again, this is how he understood Jesus was the Messiah. It was from the Old Testament. So there's, there's no sense of, well, I know, guys, it's hard to understand. No, it wasn't. It was very clear to them, or should have been very clear to them. But instead of accepting him, they not only rejected him, they killed him. And then they persecuted anybody who would follow him. And Jesus, not me, not John, Jesus identifies that with Satan. Um, I think he would identify all synagogues who were behaving that way that way. Okay. See, there's two things that, that would have made this true if you accept this understanding of the phrase. And I personally don't see any other that is anywhere near as obvious. You guys, are you guys familiar with the principle of Occam's razor? Razor? Okay. Uh, Occam's razor is simply a principle that... Um, Ironically, I'm probably oversimplifying it, that when you're looking for an explanation, the most simple explanation is almost always right. The most obvious is what we do is we want to just complicate everything. And yet, most of the time, the most obvious is it's right. And I think that's true here. Now, if that's correct, then that also applies to why they're called a synagogue of Satan. They reject the Messiah. But they don't just reject the Messiah. They reject and persecute anyone who would follow him. So, I mean, even if they simply disagree, well, I'm just not convinced. Okay, now you're going to persecute, maybe even kill people for following someone whose teaching is 100% based in the Old Testament. How does that work? Even the Pharisees could not get around his teaching. They could never trip him up on his teaching because it was straight from the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to be teaching uh, a week from Sunday. Uh, we're doing an intergenerational service, by the way. Spread the word. It's going to be very interesting. Um, and it's going to be fun and it's going to be cool. But the teaching will be in different segments because we'll have younger people with us and we want to keep their attention. But there's still going to be the teaching. There's going to be, who is, who is this God? That's the title. Uh, the first part is what I call the omni-God. You guys remember the omni-God? Anybody know what I mean? Occam's Razor. The omni-God. Omnipotent. Omniscient. Omnipresent. Yes. So I, the omni-God. We, we refer to him as, everything's the omni, and that's the traditional description of God. But it sort of leaves us open to the concept of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You've heard this? The God of the Old Testament, he's the judge, he's the, he gave the law, he's vengeful, he's the God of the New Testament is forgiving and loving and graceful. Bull. There is not two gods. <laughs> the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and the God of the Old Testament was just as loving, and folks, I'm sorry, but the God of the New Testament will be judge. It hadn't gone away. So, same kind of a teaching, they had no excuse. So he just tells it like it is. They, they belong to Satan. Um, the crown. 
you'll get the crown, but be careful that no one, read what it actually says, I'm sorry. I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have so no one will take your crown. Okay. Now the word crown basically means crown, but crown was not simply something given to a king. In fact, that what we think of as a as a crown, like uh, the British crown jewels, and you know, they, they didn't do that. <laughs> they had other symbols. Usually, a, a scepter was was going to be a much bigger thing. Um, so, who got a crown? Those who were no, and in the culture generally, that just you grow up in this culture, and somebody got a crown. What were you likely to think they had just done? They won? They won. They won. What they won? A victory. Yeah, they won a victory. What kind of victory, though? Athletic. It was probably a sporting event, an athletic event. And it wasn't gold, <laughs> unless it was a stinking good sporting event. Um, it was usually laurel leaves or something like that, woven into a crown. You wore the crown. It's kind of like, you know, a trophy. You come home with a, a trophy from your, uh, your baseball league or whatever. That's what it was, okay? So you get it when you win. He says, hold fast to the end so no one will take your crown. So how do you not get the crown? Louder? You give up on him. You do not stay faithful. You do not overcome. You don't become the very next sentence an overcomer. You don't win. You let Satan win instead. It's not about saints. It's not about degree of holiness. It's not about, you know, you're, you're so faithful that God did miracles through you. It's you didn't deny me. That's, that's what he's been saying here. You haven't denied me. You have not turned your back on me. Keep that up. Don't let anybody take your crown. Because by keeping that up, you're going to win. You're going to get the crown. And they all got that. Nobody thought they were going to be the king because of it, because that's a much later kind of a thing. Um, I'm coming quickly. Did anybody actually look up the word quickly? What does it mean? Okay. Suddenly, without delay, meaning it's the next thing on the agenda, before long. Which all sounds similar, except if you think about it, there's two things that are a little bit different. There's chronological uh, closeness. How soon? Now, since it's 2,000 years, and it hadn't happened yet, we have a unique perspective on that that they didn't have. Uh, but they'd already had, and they, they, they may well have seen Peter's letter, because uh, it was written 20 or 30 years earlier, a perspective that said a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years to the day. The Lord is not slow as we think of slow. And it was in response to this very same issue, because people were now decades away from the resurrection of Jesus, and they're like, what happened? He's not here yet. We're dying. We didn't think we were going to die. 
And Jesus said, if you die, you will, you will live again. He did not say you won't die at all. So they had to wrestle with that. We don't because we're thousands of years down the line. It's pretty obvious. So between I'm coming suddenly, which sounds suspiciously like a thief in the night, or I'm coming immediately, which one of those do you suppose is true? <laughs> Makes a lot more sense to us, doesn't it? But if a thousand days, or a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years to God, God simply doesn't see time the way we do. Would you agree with that assessment? God is outside of time. Time's part of creation. And the very name he chose for himself is a name that defies time. I am. Then two days? Not quite two days. It's not really that long, is it? So it could mean the other as well. We simply got to be backing off of our prejudice of we understand what time's like. We understand um, the, the nature of things, and God isn't measuring up to what we think. That's why Peter said what he said. No, 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 no. It's just, God's not you. So that's, that's when he got, God isn't slow as we count slow. A day is like a thousand years, vice versa. So it could be either one of those. Either one really fits. Any questions anymore about Philadelphia? You want to dive in? We're cruising. Okay, here we go. Letica. Okay, not. Letica's okay. I didn't add any letters. But, well, I, I created my own diphthongs. So Laodicea, or Laodicea, depending on what you want to do with that O, that at least pronounces everything. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, now, um, and you may not have had time to look this up, but has anybody got information on Laodicea? Well, yell it out if you've got it. Phrygia. Phrygia. Um, and and it, it says near modern something or other. Yeah. Because this is the other of the two of the seven that uh, really does not have the same, the same city does not exist. Okay. So there's other, yes, there's inhabitants near it, but Laodicea as a city did not persist over 2,000 years. Whereas some of those others did. Okay. Um, what else? Widely known for its banking, establishments, medical school, and textile industry. Okay. Major weakness was lack of adequate water supply. Okay. Which would have been before this. So um, what he's talking to would be the rebuilt. Mm -hmm. When that happened, when they rebuilt, they declined imperial assistance and then rebuilt it. Around 
which was not a slap on, on the empire. And we know this because, like the others, as a major city, it was another center of the imperial cult. It's pretty hard to be a major city under military occupation and thumb your nose at the military, <laughs> right? So that kind of goes through all of this. Very wealthy, uh, wealthiest in the area, many temples, but Zeus was the patron uh, deity of Laodicea. So um, like, like the others, they, they did not just worship one god. And who was Zeus in the, in the uh, Greek pantheon? Yeah. He was the king of the gods and also the father of the gods. So uh, a, a lot of the other gods were considered to be either, uh, there was two that were considered to be his brothers, but the rest of them were his children or half-children. So uh, an image of both power, uh, rank, but also the familial image of patriarch of the gods. Extra credit, who were the two that were his brothers? Hades is one. Think of it as Zeus over the, the earth, Hades the underworld, and I just gave you a hint then. No. Poseidon, I believe, was the... Neptune or Poseidon? Now I'm mixed up. Well, they're the same, but one was the Greek and one was the Roman, so we're, I'm searching for the Greek one. But yes, um, he was the, the, the one who ruled the sea. See, so Zeus over the earth, meaning land. So land, sea, and underworld. Uh, if there was anything having to do with the sky, Zeus certainly would have been considered over it although we have some other deities uh, who were his descendants, like Apollo, who was the sun, or the sun god. Okay? So, um, really very, very similar in a lot of ways. If you're, if you're seeing trends, that's what made a city major then, is having these uh, places of worship, having uh, some sort of collaboration with Rome, um, and certainly then that meant if we're collaborating with Rome and you're thumbing your nose at Rome or Rome even thinks you are, we're not real jazzed about you because you're rocking our boat. And I'm obviously modern metaphors, but that's the way they felt. Any of these citizen, or cities would have hated any group they saw threatening the stability, the, the wealth and the power that they gained by partnering with Rome. And how were these people like Christians threatening that power or that relationship? Anybody remember? What was it about Christians that they found threatening to their relationship with Rome? Which meant... They didn't, well, not them. They didn't worship him, emperor. So if they allowed these Christians to thrive in their city, now the emperor says, hmm, 
So, a whole bunch of you, Laodiceans, aren't willing to worship me. You don't bow to me. You are not loyal to the empire. This was not a healthy thing. Not at all. And by the way, it is a fascinating study, if you've ever done it, to read the history. And, uh, and there's one book I've got that actually attempts to read the mental health into what we know of the history of the first century emperors. And uh, obviously, we're using modern diagnostics that many of us would challenge today, much less reading back 2,000 years ago. But the fact of the matter is, to put it more colloquially, most of them were pretty nuts. Yeah. And you, you did not want these people upset with you or thinking that you're against them. This was not healthy. And I don't care if you were a thousand miles from Rome, it was still not healthy. And so, not so much the Christians, the Christians were already there. But any of these cities were going to be hard on the Christians for fear that Rome would see them as friendly with the Christians and the Christians' behavior if they weren't. Does that make sense? All right, starts off, and we're going to just finish verse 14 and then come back and ask a question. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So we've got in the New American Standard three words capitalized, Amen, witness, beginning. Why capitalized? Okay. It all began, I mean, he was called the seven spirits, the seven spirits of God and seven stars. But didn't he, in Philadelphia, he's called these other things. Yeah, I don't, he's not called those, he's calling to those. Yes. Um, but yes, the, the capitalization is um, rendering them as proper nouns. Who rendered them as proper nouns. Bingo. The translators. So the original text did not have the mechanism to do that. There was, uh, it was all capitals. Uh, the words weren't even separated. The letters just bled together. Much less sentences and, and, and uh, paragraphs being separated. So the translators are looking at this and saying, Clearly, they're talking about Jesus, therefore, these words should be capitalized. Okay? The Amen. What does that mean? The end of a prayer? <laughs> let it be so. Okay. It could be the let it be so, but that doesn't make much sense. So just go with that just a little bit more. Okay. Because when we say let it be so, that's what I mean, which, we, which in English is Amen. That's what it means. It does not mean, okay, I'm done praying now, Lord. The end. <laughs> um, people think it means that. I guarantee you, you ask almost any kid in this congregation, and they think it means that. So we've got a little teaching to do there. It means let it be so, or let it be true. So he is the amen. So he is the truth. He is the reality. 
He's not even the one who makes it true or makes it real. He is it. Okay? The witness um, is the martyr, which we get martyr from that. That means witness. He's, he's the one who's seen everything. He's the one who knows everything. He doesn't, he doesn't have anybody tell him. He doesn't have to be educated. He sees it all. Because in other letters, he is called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's, he's always been, always will be. And now he's also the beginning. And that's an interesting word. Um, you would think beginning in the context of creation would, well, I would think, because I did think, um, would have been uh, the word we get Genesis from, Genao. But it's not. It's archi. The arch. What does that mean? Does anybody know? Why does arch mean he was there before? I, did, I didn't say, I don't know what arch means. I know. But I, and you're, you're right, I'm just fishing. <laughs> I mean, he was there, and this says he was there, which yeah. is why they use the word beginning. But it says a bit more. It's, it's not a word that they really could have found one word to translate it neatly. It's a bigger word. Arch, archi was not just chronological, it was qualitative and um, authoritative. So the archangel doesn't mean he was the first angel. May have been. We don't know. But the archangel means he is the head angel, the lead angel, if you will, the, the prime angel, the one who has authority. Archi means ruler, because he is the first. We use the same metaphor, right? Um, we do not call Donald Trump the first citizen, primarily because there's some literature that just freaks us out if we ever went that direction. But what do we call his wife? The first lady. I've even heard this stupid dog. I'm sorry, I think it is stupid called the first dog. I'm sorry, that's just a little overboard. Why? Because of the household of the leader. And it's this concept of the archi. Jesus is identified as not just, the, not the first of the creati creation uh, in the sense that he was created, because he wasn't. Alpha and Omega makes that clear. Um, John makes it clear when he said he was, through him all things were created. Same guy, you know. Um, so, no, it's not about that. It's he is over everything, all creation. Pretty important when you're trying to remind people under the thumb of Rome that there's someone bigger, more powerful that's on their side. So, again, Simple statement, one that we can all get. We, but unless you're in that situation, we don't really get the emotion that this delivers. If you're, if you're in that situation and you read this and you're reminded that the Archi of all creation is the one writing you a letter to both encourage and admonish you not to give in. 
Then, I know your deeds. Sound familiar? So, yeah, definite formula. And this is the fun one. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. Wish you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, and the lukewarm word is really interesting. It means lukewarm. It's one of those where, you know, you get used to looking things up and you think you're going to find something really fascinating and you find absolutely nothing. It's just exactly this. Neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What is the medical word for vomit? There you go. Guess what this word is? It's that word. It does not mean spit. This is our friends over on Beach Boulevard trying to be nice. You guys aware of that, by the way? Lockman Foundation is on Beach Boulevard in La Mirada. Call them up. They give tours. It's fascinating. We've done it. The Lockman Foundation, the group that it translates the New American Standard Bible. Um, La Mirada, Beach Boulevard. We, our staff, about seven or eight years ago, toured them. And it was fun. But uh, they're trying to be nicer. They're trying to be civil. Um, I think that's a real mistake because <laughs> it's kind of hard to, to make some parts of the Bible nice and civil. Jesus said, I will vomit you. That's the word. I, it's, there's no other word for it. It's not spit. So it, this is very graphic and it's definitely not a good thing. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and yet you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I believe we would use the term deluded. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. In other words, fix it, <laughs> you know. Uh, I advise you, again, sounds kind of fun. Uh, if, if you go back and decide to do this, still do it. It's not a bad exercise. But the word is, um, it, it isn't advise in the sense of, I come alongside and here, let me give you some guidance. Uh, it, there, there is a word, volition, vulome. And it is a plan. It is used to describe God's perfect and uh, indisputable will. For example, the plan of salvation, the, the plan of the Messiah, the gospel itself. God has what we call a permissive will. Thelo. He wants us to all be perfect and not sin. And yet, there we go. He could stop that. He chooses not to and rather to give us the ability to decide. When Vulome is involved, he does not do that. In this sense, God's plan is immutable. It will happen. You don't like it? Go jump in the sea, see what happens to you. What happens? Giant fish. You end up going the other way anyway. See? God will accomplish his plan, whether it is through us or in spite of us. That's the word, except it's a compound word, and it means to plan together. So let's plan this together. 
It's as though Jesus is bending down to them and saying, look, I have a will. As God, I have a will that you are not going to thwart. Why don't you come on board with that? Here's some ways to do it. Because he's already told them the alternative. The alternative is, I'm going to vomit you out. But instead, you should be coming to me for the real gold that's been purified. You should be coming for the garments that are truly white, which, by the way, denote what? Purity, holiness. Uh, lack. Remember that, that thing about the worship. Lack of of sin, lack of uh, a defilement before God, morally, spiritually. Only he can provide that. You should be coming for me for some medicine because your eyes aren't working too well. And you need to be able to see. So it's, it's pretty, it's, it's firm. It's even a little bit, at the very least, ironic, if not sarcastic. And yet, it is not strictly judgmental. You can do this. I advise you to do this. I'm letting you in on my plan. So you better do this. But it's still up to them. They can choose to do it or choose not to. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love. This is one of the few places where the love of God is not agape. Those whom I love, anybody have it? Phileo. Jesus said before he died, I'm going to call you my servants now. I'm going to call you my friends. And so he goes back to that. It's kind of a fascinating thing. You can read all sorts of things into it. I'm not sure what to read into it, except this isn't new. He's already said it. I'm inviting you to be my friends. I'm inviting you to be the friend of God, the one who sits on the throne. But those whom I love, I do not leave that way. There's a phrase I've been using for some time. He loves us just the way we are. He truly does. But he loves us too much to leave us this way. I said that for the very first time when uh, a person for about the hundredth time told me, God loves me the way I am and, and he's just fine with it. And I said, no, he doesn't. Because you're sinning and he's not fine with the sin. So you're, you're adding two things together and that makes a false addition. Does he love you? Yes. Does he accept you the way you are? No. He judges you the way you are because you're sinning. Not because he created you that way, but because you did it. <laughs> so repent. Which, by the way, is what he said. So what does he do with those he loves? According to this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Does that sound familiar? What's that sound like? Anybody remember the, the passage? Does anybody remember the passage that that sounds like? Thank you. To what? <laughs> it's Hebrews to what? <laughs> I love the absolute commitment sometimes. One of my favorite passages, if not my favorite, because it's the one, no matter what happens to me in life, 
that reminds me God is treating me as his son. Which is not comfortable. He is not interested in his son being comfortable or for that matter happy. He is interested in his son being strong, being mature, being the son he created me to be. And so it, that all discipline for the moment is unpleasant. Same word, discipline, pedia. The walking through life to make us bump into things and grow up. The wealthy ones, by the way, would hire a Greek slave to do that, or buy a Greek slave to do that. The philosopher, who was great at philosophy, but not so much with the sword. And so they would hire someone like that, and that person would be the pedagogue, the, the one who walked around and did the padilla, pedagog. Um, and, and, and he would not be doing it himself. But the father who loves his children so much that he doesn't, isn't willing to entrust that to someone else, he's going to train them himself, that's a unique and a rare father. And that's God. Now Jesus says almost the same thing, but he takes on the role not as father, but by using that word phileo, it's like he's saying he's big brother which I also kind of like, and I also struggle with. I've shared with you guys publicly that I have a problem with the word father, and I've kind of worked through it. Um, I, haven't, I haven't worked through big brother. I had a big brother. We hated each other's guts, um, literally. I mean, all this stuff you hear about, well, you know, they'll, they'll fight like cats and dogs, but boy, you just don't come between them. Don't let anybody else come between them. Nah, anybody else could come in. That was no problem. Um, it never changed. We were civil when he died a few years ago. But it never changed. So this big brother thing, I look for Jesus and I think, I don't know what that is, but I know it's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> it's not what I think. It's not what I've experienced. And by the way, not what I was. To the 55-year-old young woman I still call Runt, to whom I'm big brother. So, can't say I redeemed that phrase in my life. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he with me. The dine with him thing, when, when you ate with someone in that way, providing food as a host was uh, an imperative in a harsh land. More so in, uh, the, in what we would call today the Middle East, this is Turkey today, but still, even in that area, um, there were no, uh, it wasn't like there was the, the hospitality industry everywhere. So somebody's traveling, you helped them because that could be you later. But when somebody comes in and you welcome them to your table and they dine with you as an honored guest at your table, you're creating a unity with them. You didn't do that with just everybody. So there was a symbolism to that that was really strong. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be that. I'm going to be that friend to you. I'm going to be united with you. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. And of course, that requires an action from the person inside, right? What's the action? Open the door. Open the door. Now, have you ever heard that before? 
Behold, I stand at the door and lock. Okay? Maybe yours is different than mine. Where have you heard that? What context have you heard that? Okay, but, oh, but context for us. Okay, an evangelistic. I heard that half a dozen times from people trying to get me to come to the Lord uh, during the Jesus movement when I was saying, get away from me, get away from me. Um, it was all about people who don't know Jesus. But who is he saying this to? People who are part of the church in Laodicea. And that's an interesting and a scary thing. That Jesus would have to come to the church and say, apparently I'm not with you. But look, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. All you got to do is open. But he's saying it to us. Now, is he saying it to you? I don't know. I personally think this is a sheep and a goats thing. I think he's saying it to anyone to whom it applied. But when he tells them, you're not hot, you're not cold, and I am going to vomit you out, I have a suspicion it applied to a lot of them. And so how many people at North Orange would that apply to? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That face right there, that's the face that when you ask that question, you go, wow. I guarantee it wouldn't apply to all of us. Well, I don't guarantee you. I strongly doubt it would apply to all of us. But it applies to some of us. And we've got to remember that. The goats were people who did not think they were goats. So we've got to be asking ourselves, are we, these, are we the hot, the, the lukewarm, the not hot, the not cold? We're just there. If that's who we are, What is Jesus' visceral response to us? Yeah. Does that mean we're just going through the motions? Not really. He didn't say. So in my human mind, I suspect. But one way or the other, because I mean, it's kind of like the Ephesians who've lost their first love. I can see it happening to people who, who... truly believed and they really understood and they were really the old term they were on fire for the Lord but then remember the the parable of the seed and the different kinds of soil and there was the rocky soil and things grew and the seed grew but the roots weren't good enough and when the thorns which were the cares and pleasures of the world came it choked out the faith I can see that, and I can see that applying at North Orange and every other church in this country. And I long ago accepted that I serve a congregation that's half Christian and half not. And by half, I mean part and part. I don't mean 50-50, because I don't know. Um, that's Jesus' teaching says that. Okay. But part of my role, I think, part of all of our roles is, first of all, make sure we're sheep. We've given a warning, and we've given, we're given the criteria, the way to know whether you're sheep or goats. So make sure we're sheep. But the second part is, let's pass the warning on. If we care about anybody, we're not going to sit back 
when we're looking at them going, man, it looks like that whole lukewarm thing to me. And just keep quiet and let it happen. It's like somebody sitting in a chair that's on fire. <laughs> For some reason, they don't get it. And we just sit back and go, well, it's going to get pretty toasty in a minute for him. Glad I'm not him. That's not love. Love goes over and says, are you nuts? Get out of the chair. What's going on? And if they don't like us, if they think we're idiots or we're, we're whatever, okay, but you're burning up. <laughs> so. Give me an example of the guy in the chair or the woman in the chair. Anybody who's lukewarm. Or not doing it something. deals with sin. Well, and there's, and there's lots of sin. Sin is within all of us, so we don't have to go looking for extra sins. But are they turning to the Lord? Is it a complacency? The lukewarm thing? Probably. I mean, I think that's kind of what the whole tepid, lukewarm metaphor gets across. You've always done it. Your parents did it. You like the small group people. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they serve good food when you go to a certain small group. And thank you for being the new one so that she's free of it. <laughs> yeah, and that's basically what she did. She basically was like, So let's turn that to the church today. What is it we're supposed to be doing? Are they Christians that you're dealing with at work? Catholic. Okay. Let's, let's keep, though, let's, let's take that, but let's, let's turn to us because we're not responsible for others. What does that look like for us? The opposite of, of that is, if we're not that, what are we? If I'm real, what am I going to be doing today, in this place, in this society, in this time? What am I going to do? Going back to a Sunday sermon, we're to be peacemakers. Okay. I'm going to recognize what's going on in the world around me, the community around me. First of all, I'm not going to get sucked into it. And second, I'm going to do everything I can to live peace. I was already 10 minutes over time, by the way, but the, the, so I didn't go into it. The word peacemaker literally is peace doer or practicer. So it's not necessarily that you two are upset with each other and I somehow get you together. That's great. But it's that I practice peace. I go out there and yeah, be peace. peace and, and then I 
take that peace with God and I live it out with you, okay? There's all sorts of people because we live on Lincoln Avenue. There's, or, 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 or we don't live here. We, the church building is here. So yeah, sometimes I live here, but we're not supposed to do that. Um, and there's all sorts of people here who have all sorts of needs. And some of them are never going to not have those needs. We're back to a point in our economy where the, our, our population of storehouse has shifted again. And there's a large number of those people that I will never, ever, ever, ever find jobs for because no one in their right mind is ever going to hire them. They're just not employable. I wouldn't. So what am I going to do with them? Feed them. I'm going to feed them. Feed them. Absolutely. What? I'm going to interact with them. And it's one of the things that we say a lot in our prayer circle before Storehouse is, guys, we can't just hand them food and look, I don't want to touch that one. You know, these are our guests is the word we use. And we can, we're blessed sometimes to have low days when we're not working all the time because then we actually have time to sit down and talk with people. And some of those people, as soon as we start talking to them, we think, oh, Lord, what have I done? <laughs> you know? Cecil. Cecil. Yes, he's, he's the what have I done of the day right now. Um, and, and part of the imperative to me as a Christian is to not cut him off if I can avoid it. Some I have to avoid because they, their behavior gets so heinous that I have to say you can't be around here because we've got kids around here. We've got other people who, who need to be safe. And we've literally had some of our people murder other of our people between Thursdays. It's not a safe place being on the street. So we've got, to, we've got to do that, see? We see those needs. We've got to respond to them the best we can. I can't save them all. I, I can't save them physically. I can't save them spiritually. I'm, I work for the Messiah. I'm not him. But I've got to love them because why? It's commanded. Yeah, if nothing else, because God loves me, but if nothing else, because he told me to. So if I'm not sensitive to his love for me, if, if nothing else, be legalistic. He said do it, so get up and do it, you know. That's being on fire for God. And yeah, somewhere in the, in the process, I'm going to say, by the way, have you heard the gospel? <laughs> you know why I do this? We stand up on Thursdays. Every Thursday, one of us shares the gospel in some form. Every Thursday. And I see them, and many of them literally roll their eyes. And sometimes I have fun with them. I go, see, I saw your eyes roll, dude. Because we know they're there for the food. And yet some of those very same people, when something else happens, and we're the only ones that will stand beside them, start talking to us and start showing an interest. And some of them, not many, but some of them, we've been able to lead to the Lord. So it's not just doing things, it's also being his ambassador because that's what he said we are. We're all in different circumstances. You all know different people. You're in different situations. So every one of us has our own sphere of influence in which we practice this. In some ways, mine is the, is the easiest, to be honest. Uh, in some ways, by the way, it ain't. So don't get cocky. Um, come with me for a week and I'll introduce you to some of the not-so-easy ones. But... The bottom line is people expect it of me. So they're not quite as blown away when I start getting religious on them. That's, yeah, I thought you were going to say that. Well, cool. Now that you know I'm going to say it, 
Let's talk about it, you know. All right. Finally, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Did you hear that? Not next to me. Not as the disciples said, on your left and on your right. On my throne. Which, by the way, is the same throne that the Father is on because Jesus is sitting on the throne with the Father, according to Scripture. What does that mean? It means we will share his power, his uh, archness. Not over each other, but over creation. That's what we were created to do until we messed it up. I will, you will sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which, by the way, we should just end with this. And you said I could go 15 minutes over and I went 17. Sorry. But you don't have to come back next week. Every one of these letters is ended not with, so if you live in Sardis or you live in Laodicea, you better listen. No. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of these. Because this is recorded so that we can learn from it as well. And Lord willing, not have to be in the situations that they're in. Because God has given us a way of learning from their experiences. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That, uh, for those of you online, um, it's a long one, but we're done. So have a good night. <laughs>